And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf for the 219th time on the Coot Street Podcast! And our listeners are so happy that your introduction is back after my lame attempt to do something last week. I thought you so. might, have, might have sort of pioneered new territory there, Gary. Um, I don't think our listeners felt it was pioneering new territory. I think it <laughs> felt to them like a retreat, a timid retreat from dr- drama into not quite NPR dump. But, <laughs> but but then we had Harlan and Bill on, so that was fine. Yes, congratulations on, on that episode. It seemed to go really well. Um, I think that, well, I, I hate to review an episode on the next episode, uh, Bill is great. Bill, Bill and Harlan obviously get along very well. And Harlan is just, um, I think, unexpectedly to a lot of people who don't know him or haven't been in touch with him lately, he's he's kind of a happy guy these days. Yeah, that doesn't really compute, does it? I thought he was supposed to be professionally angry. Um, I think he's, he's he, he spent time in which that was his reputation, and he's certainly done things uh, that, that seem to enforce that, but... But one of the things that um, um, I, I've, I've said, I said in when I was reviewing Top of the Volcano, is that there are probably people around today, especially younger readers, who know more stories about Harlan than they know stories by Harlan. Um, well, I think that's very all, true. Yeah, yeah, almost all the anecdotes are exaggerated to some extent. Well, um, yeah, and and obviously there's the, the lamentable events of Worldcon 2006, and that has over, overshadowed an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and I don't think there's any defending that. I don't think Harlan would attempt to defend that. Um, the other stories that go back decades of his throwing fans down elevator shafts and that sort of thing um, are patently urban legends. I mean, it's a sort of thing that you, know, you can check this out in the news if it were real. <laughs> yes, but somehow it's easier to cast him as some dreadful figure than as an actual person, right? Well, apart from that... Uh, to cast him as a, as, a, as a kind of urban legend figure rather than a writer. Uh, and I think one of the things that uh, Top of the Volcano does is brings, brings attention back to his writing, which brings us to a topic that you and I have been talking about off-podcast that is kind of interesting. Um, well, yes. I mean, some of it has to do with my, my problems with Top of the Volcano, which, you know, happily is almost sold out in print. And I think you have to go to a reliable online retailer now to get it. You can't get it from the publisher. And I also think, you know, that it may be that you know, you've, you've made the assertion in your review and elsewhere that you think it's the most valuable in many ways introduction to Harlan out there. And yes. I suspect that will only be true for the ebook edition of the book. This is not because uh, Subterranean haven't made a beautiful book because they do that, mm-hmm. but because, first of all, I mean, w- w- ignoring the joys of the physical object that is Top of the Volcano, a $7 ebook or a $5 ebook is potentially going to be read by an awful lot more people on an out of print $50 hardcover. I think that's true. Um, and I think that's, it, it creates an interesting idea of what the market is because. Subterranean and uh, presses before them, um, you know, Underwood Miller, the collector's presses, uh, have always produced beautiful objects and things that collectors want, but in the case of, well, let's take a case that you and I have been involved in. In the case of Centipede doing the R.A. Lafferty stories, lovely volumes, clearly designed to sell to Lafferty collectors and not to introduce a new audience to R.A. Lafferty. I think that's um, very true. 
And the ebook is the exact opposite of that. The ebook basically says for seven or eight dollars, you can get a good, solid, large collection of Harlan Ellison stories. If you've wondered what he was about, here it is. Yeah. Um, but, but this actually is where we segue into the conversation about what we were talking about, which is, I guess, the art form of the short story collection as a thing itself. Yes. And, and one of the objections you, you had that you said to me about Top of Volcano is it's just the stories. There's no commentary, no introduction, no forwards and afterwards, uh, no patter between stories. And my argument is that's fine uh, for people who just want to find out what the fiction is about. But you see, the thing is, to me, Harlan, more than any other writer in the history of the field, has made, first of all, the art form of the short story collection a thing, and has mm -hmm. made the inclusion of his authorial voice beyond the context of the fiction a key part of the form of the short story collection. You know, through the, you know, the, the provision of introductions, individual story notes. Uh, I mean, even the acknowledgements are care, you know, and, and dedications are artfully, uh, you, know, you know, sort of assembled. I mean, he, he spends a lot of time looking at and, and setting specifications for how the bibliography is pre presented for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, so it's very, very carefully done. Well, and we can extend that from his short story collections to his anthologies like Dangerous Visions, which are to use a term that we've used a lot in this podcast, which are engaging in dialogue. I mean, the, the Dangerous Visions has long anecdotal stories by Harlan, long introductions to each story, afterwards to each story by the author of the story. It's clearly meant to be a performance piece. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's like I would argue the greatest talent, as opposed to the greatest skill, the greatest talent of Neil Gaiman is not necessarily his word-by-word -word writing skills. His greatest talent, his greatest gift, is his auctorial voice that comes across when he does spoken word recordings and when he writes in almost any form. Similarly for Harlan, you know, mm. there is a distinctive authorial voice, and the way that he frames and welcomes you into work is by adding these notes. And we've all read, well, no, not we've all. I read a lot of short story collections. You've read a lot of short story collections, uh -huh. and many of our listeners have. A lot of them come with no story notes. Uh, a lot of them come with, frankly, perfunctory story notes added as you know, mm -hmm. after effects or because you feel like they're kind of owed. But you know, if you look at, say, somebody like uh, Howard Waldrop is another great example. You know, Waldrop's story notes, like uh, Ellison's story notes, are an integral part of of the book. You know, they, well, they, they, they lead you from here to there. And the thing about this being the, well, I guess it's the award-winning stories of Harlan Ellison, and this is where we could, you know, mm -hmm. you know quibble around, right? Um, if I were to say, you know, to compile the best of Harlan Ellison, to omit some of his nonfiction, to omit some of his essays and whatever else, would be to miss a key part of his oeuvre. Uh, with this book, you know, I do think it's, it almost misses the chance. Now, I'm going to be careful. Misses representing rather than misrepresents him. I think it misses representing a key part of him. And I've always felt like uh, fans have talked about doing the collected stories of Harlan Ellison for some years now. And with his with his, his output falling, it's been conceivable you could do it in 400 volumes. And whenever I thought about doing it, I always thought, well, you'd have to go through every collection, every 
you know, book, everything else, pull out all the story notes, assemble them around the stories. And Harlan, I mean, he's, he's infamous for not just introducing, but reintroducing. You know, I've got, I've got a, a paperback here in my hands, Gary, just quickly, of the 1976 edition of Love Ain't Nothing But Sex Misspelled. Which features not only an original introduction, but an introduction to the new, the new, you know, the, you know, the new edition, and all this sort of thing. You get multiple introductions. You get key story notes, and they all make it make sense. That's true, and I think the part of what you're talking about, Neil Gaiman, is another good example of this. Is that to some extent these are authors who have attained a great deal of personal celebrity, who have been seen a lot uh, in performance to some extent, and when they're selling a book. To, to a large chunk of the readers, they're selling their voice. They're not just selling their stories, they're selling their voice. Um, and the, the kind of portrait of Harlan that you speak of uh, is, in fact, something that, that your friend Terry Dowling has done in a very large book called The Essential Ellison, um, which has a lot of the nonfiction in it. It has a lot of the stuff which is not science fiction or fantasy in it. It gives a very broad, uh, generous portrait of, of Harlan's overall... Voice as, as expressed in a lot of different areas. The problem with that for somebody who doesn't know much about why Harlan Ellison is an important writer is it gives you too much. It gives you too much of the personality and not enough of a discrete selection of the best stories. Well, that that may be so. I mean, I mean, to me, the real argument is, in fact, that the selection of stories, which are, I think is more focused on giving you a broad representation of Harlan's output rather than giving you the best of it. Yeah. Is some somewhat flawed, whereas you know a collect and, and, and deliberately so. I mean, we have to understand that essential Ellison is is probably very aptly named, in the sense mm. that it is Harlan reduced to his essence, warts and all, f flaws and strengths, whatever else. Mm. Whereas a best of a you know a selected stories or whatever else is going to be the best stories, but I think it should also have had that extra personality. Now, plainly Harlan doesn't agree, and I can I can see why, and, and uh -huh. plainly Bill as well, and I can see why, but that's my quibble with the book. You know, um, it's, I remember being told by, by um, Charles Brown, you know, that, that when you're reviewing a book, you don't argue with it, you review the book uh -huh. that it is. And that's why, you know, I mean, I would not mention this kind of thing if I were reviewing um, you know, the top of the volcano. But in the context of this conversation, I think, you know, sort of what we're talking about, short stories as a form. And I guess this is the thing as well, maybe we should shift our perspective a little bit and talk about, you know, do you think, do I think, do we think there's been an evolution in the form of the short story collection? Do you think it's changed, you know, the role of it in the field? I think it absolutely has. I mean, I, we're talking about, maybe we're talking about special cases uh, with people like Harlan Ellison and Neil Gaiman. But when you think back to the early short story collections, and the person that comes to mind right, right away is Bradbury. Uh, Bradbury's first st short story collection was Dark Carnival from Arkham House, which I think had no story notes at all. It was actually put together by August Derleth. But when he moved uptown, when he got to Doubleday, when he thought he was, when, when he got to the New York publisher, first thing he did was the Martian Chronicles, where you create a sort of really half-baked narrative to link together stories that were written really without any idea of their being published or, or, or collected together. And that's fine because it, that, that, that becomes the archetype of what Van Vogt later talked of as the fix-up. But then his second collection of stories, The Illustrated Man, was 
a really bad idea to try to connect stories by by tattoos on a shirtless fat guy who twitches and shows different <laughs> tattoos. It's the worst idea for putting together a bunch of stories I've ever heard. And it was made worse when Rod Steiger actually portrayed that guy in the movie. Uh, do, do you really, though, judge the success of a form by a, by a failed example? Well, I think, I think that books like that, um, and there were a lot of them in the early 50s. There were anthologies that Noam Press put out that would have little interstitial materials, stories by different authors. I'm thinking of one called Journey to Infinity, which is, uh, there was another one called Men in Space, I think. They would take different stories by different authors and construct little bridges between them to have a history of the human race over a billion years or the history of the conquest of space. The idea seemed to be that you needed to have some narrative tissue between stories, that nobody just wanted to read the stories. And I, I think that kind of went away. I, I, I think you're right. The Illustrated Man is a bad example, but I think all the examples from that period were pretty bad. I will say, and this is a, obviously a personal reaction, I find every short story collection without story notes disappointing. Um, all of them. I, well, but outside of our field, almost all short story collections are like that. But, okay, this is what it feels like to me as a reader based on my own, the evolution of my reading over time. Because I read extensively through Harlan's and, uh, uh, short story collections, through Bradry's collections, through Ellison's collections, right? When I get a collection, I mean, like, as we were saying, off, you know, off the, the podcast the other day, with the, um, uh, the short story collections of Kelly Link, which very clearly follow a more literary tradition in the way they're assembled uh -huh. um, I find them somewhat disappointing I, I feel almost as though the, the author couldn't be bothered and this was a tossed off thing I don't think that's fair at all no it's uh, not, it had I, to be fair I just said that's how it felt yeah I well I, I, partly <laughs> because you know Kelly is interesting to talk to and, and again she's, she's you know if we go to enough conventions and, and chat with her she's delightful and you want to hear that voice um, when you um and I think that there is some unifying element, but this is this comes back to my next point, which probably could bring back to Bradbury. Another way of unifying a collection or making it look like a whole is is not to write additional material, but to come up with some kind of thematic connection between the stories that that unites them by tone. Like Bradbury, okay, when Bradbury republished Dark Carnival, for example, it was under the title of The October Country, and and those stories all felt like October. That was the idea. He was trying to unify them by the tone of the stories. And you could argue that Kelly Link's latest collection, Get in Trouble, even though there's not a title, uh, not, not a story with that title in it, that Get in Trouble kind of is a unifying theme for the anthology, or the collection, rather. Okay, well, okay. When, when you pick up a novel, you obviously get a certain unity of communication if you like you know you have it there, you know, there's one purpose to the story there's however many themes and sub themes within that story there's a cover there's a title it all hopefully match and enhance that so what we're saying is that when it's well done with or without story notes a short story collection does the same thing I think it can because when you get it when you're reading a novel that's a good example uh, obviously when you're reading a novel you aren't expecting story notes. You aren't expecting the author to tell you, well, this is how I wrote this, and this is what I think about it, and this one was. 
you just you just get the novel. There are some writers who will write introductions and prefaces and forewords and afterwards, but they're still comparatively rare. Yeah. Um, so, the short story collection, I think, like Get in Trouble, is is meant to stand somewhat um, as a novel, uh, uh, and, and and the stories. You know, you can see the stories in dialogue with one another, but a cleverly chosen title, and I think that's a very clever title, causes you to read stories in a certain dimension that that makes you think, okay, these stories are kind of in dialogue with each other. They're not they're not stories in a series. They're not stories that are narratively connected, but they're all stories that sort of result from the same kind of really troublemaking attitude that Kelly has in her fiction. Now, I guess we should say as well that for a lot of these things, these are subliminal cues, if you like, for the reader. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you're not sitting there when you hold your copy once it comes out, and I don't think it's actually in stores yet. But once Get in Trouble comes out, you're probably not going to sit there going, "Is this um, a whole bunch of stories about getting in trouble?" You know, you're also probably you not going to. Oh, sorry, yeah. That's absolutely true. I, I agree. I think you're also not going to play these sort of. Uh, Jack, you know the man who melted game, and say, "Oh, get in trouble, Kelly Link," because that's a fanish oh, thing yeah. to do. That's a fanish thing to do. But um, <laughs> are you? You're not going to start that. The world inside Robert Silverberg. No, let's just not go there. No, no. So anyway, so we agree that short stories are, are a form. You and I actually had, had a not unrelated conversation a couple of years ago, and I still think it's of interest. And that is, you know, you edited the um, American science fiction volumes for. Uh, the Library of America for, mm-hmm. the, for the 50s. And I remember suggesting to you that there's merit in doing a, co- a, a volume collecting best collections. I think that's a, a, and I thought that was an excellent idea. It didn't go anywhere and it probably wouldn't. But, but your reasons behind that were very good. When I was looking at 1950s novels, I realized how many of them um, really shouldn't be in the 1950s volume. The foundation quote unquote trilogy is a collection of 1940s stories and novellas. Clifford Simak's City, which in some ways is a classic of the 50s, is a collection of 40s short stories. Um, so it, 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 if you, you go on and on, The Voyage of the Space Beagle is three novellas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Foundation. In, in, the, in the 40s. So, so it's, it's true that during the 50s and probably well into the 60s, a lot of science fiction writers were uh, doing what... Um, what Van Vogt called fix-ups, you know. You, you, you suddenly had a market for novels, but you hadn't written any novels, so what you do is you go back and pick up a bunch of stories on similar themes and sort of knit them together in some way um, and, 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 and create something that vaguely looks like a novel and sometimes is. A Canticle for Leibowitz is a fine novel. Yeah. Um, despite having, you know, originally appeared as, a, I think, two novellas and then one added at the end. Maybe all three were published separately. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I mean, as, um, I, as I recall, all three foundation books are short story collections, aren't they? Exactly. Uh, they really are. And and some things that I would love to have included, like Zenny Henderson's People Stories, of which were collected in Pilgrimage, the Book of the People. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a novel. It's, it's it's a collection of stories in the same way that Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, was a collection of stories. Some of the same characters, the same setting, the same period of time, but they're still stories. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know, I mean, I, I look at this whole thing and I, I wonder whether, well, well, apart from the issue of whether we're overthinking this too much, whether the purposes that short stories and collections are put to have changed. Because, you know, I mean, you're right, you know, when you say that 
I bet if you look back through the bibliographies of the world, there weren't that enormous number of science fiction and fantasy short story collections published in the 30s and 40s. Whereas by the 50s, they become quite common. You know, because there's a hardcover book market in the world at large, uh, because their editors are willing to buy science fiction, and because basically for a decade they're hoovering up the output of the 30s and 40s and putting it into book form. Yeah, you're, 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 you're basically trying to monetize, and I, 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 can't, I, I cannot blame writers for doing this. You know, suddenly here in the 1950s and 1960s, you've written maybe in some cases millions of words of pulp fiction, which you thought were gone forever, and now you can monetize those things by sort of reimagining them and, uh, and, and recasting them as, as books, as paperback books. And a lot of good pulp writers did that. I mean, Lee Brackett did that, for example. Well, let me ask you this then. I mean, we, we could argue back and forth about whether Top of the Volcano is a good Best of Harlan Ellison or not. And, you know, we both have different views on them. But do you think, okay, what do you think the, the role of the short story collection is today? And do you think, do you think it's done well? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, do I think, it, well, first of all, the role of the short story collection today may be different, uh, again, among our tribe than it is out in general. I mean, mm -hmm. if, um, you know, if, if you see a collection of stories, let's say Karen Russell's Vampires in the Lemon Grove, uh, very good collection of stories. I don't think there are any story notes at all, but I think you're right. If she had been somebody who emerged from our community the way Kelly Link did, a lot of readers would be thinking, wait a minute, where are the notes here? Where's the, you know, where's the background? Um, so the question, I, in parentheses, there's a question I want to get back to in a minute that I don't know the answer to it, maybe you do. But I, in terms of your answering your question, do I think it's well done? I think it's, I think depending on the intention, uh, can be. Uh, it, yeah. it, it occurs to me that uh, another subterranean press book, um, Rachel Swirsky's first collection, yeah. uh, has the classic stories that we all admired when they came out, and there were some stories I'd never heard of before, and some of the stories I'd never heard of before were, were, were slight, were not uh -huh. as substantial yeah. as, as the famous ones. But nevertheless, they showed me dimensions of Rachel Swirsky's fiction that I hadn't known about before. Okay. So they were showing me a degree of versatility that I thought was uh, was very useful. Um, and, and to that extent, a sort of as an audition tape, um, small press uh, short story anthologies can do that. They can show you the author's versatility uh, in a way that uh, you know only the best and most familiar stories can't. When I look at a short story collection by a writer I like, um, and um, the Swirsky collection was a good example of that. Uh, when the best of Jonathan Carroll came out, it was like that. I'm always delighted to find stuff that I had no idea this author did anything like that. And even if that discovery isn't the best fiction in there, I'm delighted to have it. Okay. Let me ask you this. Oh, no, 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 I won't ask. I'll, I'll make an assertion for you. How's that? Um, I think these days short story collections are often done too quickly. They contain too much, and they don't let enough of a bibliography language languish out of print where it justifiably belongs. Uh, without naming publishers. Or names, uh, yep. Or names. There are a number of short story collections I've seen which obviously consist of everything the author has published to that point. There are, 
there are cases where authors, usually fairly young authors, anxious to get in print with some kind of a book, have reached a critical mass of 12 or 15 stories, and they immediately put all of them in the book, and they need all of them or they don't have a book. That, I think, can be a mistake. And I, to that extent, I'm agreeing with what you say. Yeah. Uh, does that mean there are too many short story collections? Um, I don't think so. When I was doing the year in review for Locus uh, this year, I was thinking last year had a lot of good story collections in it. That's true. And I mean, sometimes it is just the, you know, the, the vagaries of year to year. I mean, I think if you look back across the last decade, and again, we've said this before, lots and lots of high quality short story collections have come out. And, you know, assuredly a lot more will. Uh, we, we, and, you know, just the fact that we are living in this time when lower barriers to production have made it simple. You know, and by, by lower barriers, I mean, you know, mechanical costs. You know, it's cheaper now to produce and distribute uh -huh. short story collections or, or books than it was before, uh, particularly if you're doing it digitally only. Makes it well, easy to put a Sorry, yeah? But, but, but the other side of that coin is that it's much harder to get a short story collection published by a major publisher than it ever has been. Um, that's why you see major writers, um, I, well, Jonathan Carroll's an example, Nancy Crest, any number, if you look at the short story collections that come out uh, from Tachyon or Subterranean, and that don't come out from Random House or William Morrow and Doubleday, if you're not Neil Gaiman, if you're not Ursula, actually, I was going to say if you're not Ursula Le Guin, but even the major Ursula Le Guin collection of the last several years was published. No, you can't use that as an example. Okay. And you know why? Uh, why? Because it was a personal relationship issue between the publishers and the author. That's why. Okay, that's true, and that's fair enough. You know, and that uh, is fair but enough, but that makes it a separate thing. So, I mean, look, any novelist with an established career can get a collection probably published by a mainstream publisher. It's also true, though, that it's probably never been easier to get, an, get a short story collection on average published, you know. Almost mm. any writer can have a collection come out, irrespective of its literary merits. Well, I think that's true. I, I think that, that is the problem that you have uh, a combination, and again, without mentioning names, of publishers who need properties and writers who need exposure. And, and sometimes these publishers, there, there, have, there are writers, this is so bad because you and I could both name names, there are writers who are probably, probably to some extent, damaged their careers by putting out short story collections too soon. Well, now we're particularly talking about one of my favorite sub-forms of the short story collection, Gary. <laughs> and that is the debut short story collection. Yes, exactly. The debut short story collection is the one that is botched the most often, I think. And I can look back at a great, a classic string of debut of great debut short story collections you know from Howard who uh, by Howard Waldrop from Andy Duncan's Belutha Hatchie bunches of them I mean Kelly Link's uh, uh, Strangers in whatever it was the first one uh, Map of Dreams sorry yes Mary Rickard's Map of Dreams would be absolutely but generally all of these those collections have something in common and that is that they omit a great deal of the early published work and choose the cream mm -hmm. of it. And as you get to the point, I mean, another great um, set of examples, and I, I, I guess it's worth pointing out now, I think one of the great editors and most forgotten, underappreciated editors in this area, in the history of our field, is Jim Turner. Now, Jim Turner, for those who don't know, was an editor at Arkham House mm -hmm. who, who broke out... Uh, in the, the mid-1990s and formed his own press, Golden Griffin. Uh, 
Uh-huh. And he edited the first five or six books published by Golden Griffin. One of the reasons he broke out was because Arkham and the, the owners of Arkham House mm-hmm. wanted to get back to publishing straight weird, you know, pure weird fiction along a Lovecraftian bent, you know. But he was the one who saw oversaw the editing assembling of James Tiptree's Meeting in Infinity, for example. I'm oh, sorry, sorry. Right. Smoke Grows Up Forever, for example. But he did a series of great short story collections that he edited. Nancy Cress's, John Kessel's, Lucia Shepard's, uh, Andy Duncan's, uh, Neil, yeah. uh, and the great collection by Neil Barrett Jr. and others, right? And what he was you know, particularly gifted at, and you can see it in the editing of the Jaguar Hunter, Lucia Shepard's debut, which he edited, oh. uh, was omitting stories letting early work sit as early work that shouldn't be presented in that first classic short story collection. I mean, there's a great example coming this year, as you know, Gary. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of this year, I believe, our very good friends at Saga Press, hey, Joe, uh, we should have like a little sort of advertising thing on the side. Friends that we uh-huh. support, anyway, are going to publish a book that I think is going to be called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories which is Ken Liu's first collection in the English language. Now, how many short stories do you reckon Ken's published, Gary? A lot, I would think. I've seen his name around a lot. He shows up in years best, but yeah. more, than I'm, more than I'm suspecting, I guess. Well, I mean, okay. He, he really started publishing regularly in 2011. Uh-huh. Okay. So his first story appears in 2002. By, 2000, by, the fir- by day one of 2011, or Christmas of 2010, he said nine stories published. Okay. Since then, in the last four years, he's reached the point where he now has just under 100 public stories published. Wow. Right? So, in theory, he could actually have done a short story collection every year for the last four years. Easily. Mm -hmm. Instead, there's got to be one collection, which I assume will collect 10 to 14 stories. And that's the sort of thing I have to, as a a reader, I do appreciate that. I mean, there are rare writers... uh, who produce so little fiction that you pretty much can collect all of it in ten volumes. I'm thinking of Ted Chang and our friend Eileen Gunn. Yeah. Uh, but most writers write a lot and then at some point realize that some fiction is better than other fiction. And that, 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 that's an important thing for a new writer to realize. Um, and actually, now that I think about it, there are even some Ted Chang stories at this point that I might exclude from the best of <gasps> Are you allowed to say that? I thought all Ted Chang stories were you know, equally perfect and sprung from the brow of God. <laughs> well, we can but no, you're right. No, you're right. I'm being silly. Uh, I mean, Ted is brilliant, but yes, there are stories which are better Ted Chang stories and st- stories that are lesser ones. Yeah. So since this is actually culminating in nothing and not leading to anywhere particularly other than us filling some time on the podcast... Um, are there short story collections you're looking forward to in 2015? Obviously, there's two we've mentioned already, I think. We've two we've mentioned already, and and you're going to have to give me a list of what is forthcoming, because I don't have it called up on my computer as we're talking. I don't have a list at all, but let's have a look. Uh, obviously, okay. Get luck, uh, get in Trouble by... We'll get in trouble. Link. Trigger Warning uh-huh. by Neil Gaiman is of great interest to listeners to this podcast, I would think. Um... There's to be a new M. John Harrison short story collection later this year. Something which should be of great interest to listeners to this podcast. That will be very interesting. In fact, as, you, as I said to you the other day, I would be quite interested to have Mike on this, uh, on the podcast to discuss it, if only because we were 
tangentially discussing recently, very briefly, the complexity of assembling a collection and sequencing it to make it uh, optimal to read, right? And well, this, yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. Uh, if, if you don't have a fake narrative like the Martian Chronicles, then how do you arrange stories in a collection? How do you know where to put the weakest story? And this is something that you as an anthologist have to do. I, I actually have I've come to believe very strongly that this strongest, weakest thing really isn't a useful um, consideration, Gary, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. I mean, the, the classic story, and we've talked about it before, classic story about in assembling anthologies is supposed to be you do your tent pole theory your three best stories you, you presumably start with your you know, start with the best finish with the second best and put the third best in the middle and then you arrange around that because the idea being the first one will obviously get you eager to come in and keep reading the one in the middle the third best one will keep you kind of re-energized and going and you go on to the, the third one which kicks you out the door thinking gosh that was a great experience i'm glad i bought the book simple simple mm -hmm. simple and it does apply roughly to short story collections for the same reason. The problem with it is sometimes the best story in the book is not the easiest to read or the most welcoming or uh -huh. the most consistent with what the author has done or the anthologist is trying to do with the book. So it can actually throw you off. I, mean, I remember putting in one sequencing to a publisher for a book and they sort of read, and you know, they they read it. Thought, but that that opening story, which is great, is completely alienating to anybody, and they won't read past it. Uh huh. So you know, you have to take that story and place it elsewhere in the book. So I think it then come becomes this this act of almost seduction. You know, you're looking to lead someone through. You're looking to welcome them into the book. You're lo looking to engage and interest them. You're looking to make sure that there aren't jarring connections between stories. That also means that you're looking to balance the length of those stories so that, you know, the, you know, the reader isn't going to pick up a book and read a 150-page novella first because, and, and they're sort of like trying to get through to something else because they're, you know, you know it, it's, it's consuming the hard, you know, the, that, that front end of the book. You know, so there are things like, are you welcomed in? Does this does this this opening reflect what the book's supposed to be about? You know, it's like uh, when I edited a book called Under My Hat, which was a collection of witch stories. Right, mm -hmm. I remember thinking, well, okay, it's a book of young adult stories about witches. Excellent. And the first email I got back from a writer saying, that's a great idea. I want to be in it, but I want to do the transgressive story that pushes against type. Right, and you're going, okay, we can afford a couple of those in a book. Eight of the 15 writers wrote me back in the first while saying, I want to do the transgressive story that pushes against type. And you're kind of going, I need, I need an old woman in a black hat somewhere, right? Otherwise, it's not a book about witch stories. Uh-huh. And there's this too. You, you need stories that really do deliver what you expect. If you were editing, say, okay, a, a Best of Larry Niven, yeah, as I've yeah. done, you need to have known space in there or people are going to go, huh, what? Where's that? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's it, it's when we edited the the, you know, the best of Joe Haldeman, we knew that a lot of his short fiction explores themes that he doesn't look at that closely in his novels, or at least are different from his novels. Particularly the ones that he's famous famous for, the Forever War novels, right? So it was a case of like balancing that so that you still felt you were going to get the Joe Haldeman you expected, as well as this other Joe Haldeman. And if you're made to wait half the book to get there. Maybe you're engaged and intrigued. Maybe you're impatient and irritated. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you assuming that every reader of a short story collection reads the stories in sequence from beginning to end? Not at all. Not at all. Ever, ever, ever. Never assume that. However, you can only assemble it that way. 
you know, oh, you can I, 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 can't, I can't assemble a nice contrapuntal anthology that will assume that if you read it in the, in the magic order of, you know, 13826948, you'll have a particular reading experience. Well, that's... Okay, I, I, I understand that. And I, I understand that there's not a formula for anthologies, although there was an editor um, who once told me, not yourself, obviously, that, you know, you always take your weakest story and put it third from the end for some reason. Um, yeah, I, can I can't see remember. Oh, I can see why exactly. Well, oh, oh, yeah? Oh, Explain sure. it. Uh, you're two-thirds of the way through the book. You're on the run. You've already decided that this book is good or bad or worth finishing. You'll forgive, or, forgive most anything around that area. Yeah, and then you want a big kick at the end, so you yeah. can't put the story there. Uh, but my, my point is, if you're looking at a story, we, we're talking about the best of Joe Haldeman. Yeah, everybody expects to see a, a hero. They expect to see a Forever War story. Not very many people maybe expected to see Fort White Hill. In Ted Chang's Stories of Your Life. Of course, everybody expects to see Story of Your Life. It's the title story in the anthology. So from my perspective as a reader, it doesn't make any difference where you put that story in it. I'm going to look at the table of contents and make sure it's there. Sure. But I don't care if it's the lead story or the end story or, or, or two-thirds of the way through. Well, that, that's true, but also you might sit there and go, oh, well, that's great. That story's there, but now I have the book. And again, you, exactly. can, only, you can only assemble it one particular way. Um, there is a criteria, I think, that I would put forward about when you should do a short story collection and when you should not. And oh, it's good. simple. Ask yourself this. Do I have three major short stories? Three a quality, widely reprinted, possibly award-nominated, uh, award-nominated or award-winning stories. You need three of them at least. Mm -hmm. If you don't have three, you don't have a collection. That's a good rule. I mean, I don't know if the awards—I don't know if the awards are the best measure of success. Okay. I'm not saying they are. I'm putting that that as one of the characteristics in a pool of describing of deciding if you have those three stories you know because uh, in fairness to writers they have no more obje objectivity about their work than anybody else does they have favorites and whatever else but they, you know you, you need some kind of measure you know and if your stories have been widely reprinted you know like Ken Lewis doing the paper menagerie uh -huh. I believe it's paper menagerie and other stories I'm not 100% sure well the paper menagerie one a buttload of awards and was reprinted very widely right even if ken hated that story and i've got no idea whether he loves it or hates it, but even if he hated it he could sit there uh -huh. and go, objectively by some kind of feedback measure that story is one i can count on as justifying the strength of a book and well, I mean, a, a couple other stories he has as well that are in that space he has actually probably about seven stories that could sit but you know, he certainly has the three you need yeah and to some extent, I think you're right. I, to some extent, the the question is not whether whether you like the story or not. If it's well received, if it's a popular story, I mean, there there is even though the market for short story collections is a fragment of what it is for novels, there still needs it seems to me needs to be a selling point in any collection. Uh, when you have a writer whose name you've been recognizing over a period of time, uh, and you've seen them occasionally, and maybe once or twice they've shown up um, in a year's best anthology, and suddenly here's a book of 15 stories by this writer, none of which you've read before, then you have one of two reactions. Either here's something I can really discover, or here's somebody who has put together everything they've ever published in this volume, and I don't believe it's all going to be worthwhile. Well, true, true. I mean, I guess that's why you look at some collections and go, that is one I'm eager for that I can't wait to get hold of. 
Exactly. And you know, there have been a bunch of those. And I mean, we've missed lots. I mean, I, I don't have a, public, a, a, you know, a list of forthcoming collections in front of me, but I'm confident we've missed a lot of storage collections that will be well worth it. And I know collections that have sold. For example, Small Beer have lined up. Oh, they've got a. Uh, they just signed a Christopher Rowe collection, for example. Okay. That, that is really exciting. I'm very yeah, excited about that. Been, okay, this is, the, this is the other thing. Where you see somebody whose name you, you've seen exciting stories by this person intermittently over a fairly decent period of time, and you've not really gotten a sense of who they are. I mean, Christopher Rowe is a very good example for that sort of thing because they have the sense there's something to do with American history and there's yep. something to do with magic realism. But what is he really about? And I would... I would want to be able to figure that person out by looking at a bunch of short stories. Absolutely. Sure. sure. You know, and we've got the best of Ian McDonald coming out um, fairly soon, I think. And that also will be very interesting. For And Hanu Ryan Yemi has, a collect, has his collected short fiction coming out. Excellent. Which I think also will be quite interesting. And I know that we're picking these at random because we don't actually prepare for anything. And so we're missing lots and lots of good ones. And maybe we should ask our readers, just as a nice thing, if you want to mention in the comments to, to this podcast you know, collections that you're looking forward to, we will look to incorporate those into a future episode. Not next week's, though, because that one's spoken for. Right, Gary? Absolutely. Although there's another question I want to ask, which I thought of several minutes ago. And oh, good. Let's do that, because we're rambling. Well, we were talking about... Uh, okay, I started talking about Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. Okay. And we had uh, a roughly the same period. We had Gnome Press publishing the Foundation series, more or less pretending they were novels. What was the first major collection of short stories by a science fiction writer? Oh. Not counting H.G. Wells. Forget about H.G. Wells. That's not fair. So you're talking, let's to make this tidy, you're talking about post-amazing post amazing stories, short story collections, post-Hugo Gernsback. Let's even go further than that, maybe, and say post-World War II, because if you count something like The Outsider and others that was assembled by other hands, that was not actually Lovecraft putting together his stories. But we can go back to 1926, we can go back to 1946. Okay. Who was it? Who came up with the first collection of short stories? I don't know, Gary. Who was? I, if I had the answer, I wouldn't have asked you, would I? <laughs> okay. Let me float an answer that maybe... Mm, how about something like... He well, see, Heinlein didn't have a short story collection until 1950. No, not at all. He, he doesn't count. About the same year, I think, uh, probably Sturgeon had not without source, without Sorcerer without sorcery, which was his Arkham House collection, I'm guessing that either Arkham House or Fantasy House or one of those small publishers did this. Actually, uh, Dark Carnival is 1946, but it's not really science fiction stories. So, okay. First of all, I think it's easier to do it for some reason in the weird fiction, horror, dark fantasy area than it is in straight science fiction. Because you have those Arkham books to refer back to. So you can immediately say, hey, Night Black's A Night's Black Agents by Fritz Leiber would be a contender. The original Dark Carnival would be a contender. Mm -hmm. uh, the Unknown and Other Stories, by, or whatever it was, by Lovecraft would be a contender. Yeah? Uh, you mean The Outsider and Others? The what, sorry? The yeah. Outsider. Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, what, but, but for science fiction, I, I honestly, I'd have to go research it. I'm not going to lie to you. No, I would, I mean, I, I would too, and I'm 
vainly sort of trying to do it now and not because it's not the sort of thing you can easily look up. Sturgeon had an early collection. Brad, uh, the Martian Chronicles is 1950, so we have to find something before that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure. Once you get into the paperback era, once you start getting into one of the pioneer publishers of, of short story collections was, was Ballantine Books. Yeah. And with Valentine Books, you, you, you get you, you get Sturgeon, you get Bradbury, you, you don't you don't get Heinlein, interestingly enough. Well, all of, most of the major science fiction writers of the day didn't have collections out till after 1950. Right, exactly. Um, you know, so I don't know. I, I would go away and I would research that and think about it and maybe come back later on that one. Well, the reason I ask is because we've talked about the short story collection as a form, as as, as a mm -hmm. kind of art form by itself. And my argument is that this. Art form, as, uh, as, as as we've talked about it, is something almost unique to science fiction and fantasy and horror. Not entirely unique to it, but something which probably emerged sometime after the 1950s, um, and it emerged to some extent uh, in response to cults of personality. I mean, the the two people uh, who we've mentioned who are most skilled at presenting collections as performance pieces. Are Harlan Ellison and Neil Gaiman, uh, and, yeah. and and both of both of them have produced stories. And, and, and the the voice is what people want. I mean, I, th I think yeah. there there is some fairly minor material in Neil Gaiman's Trigger Warning, but you get Neil Gaiman. You get yeah. Neil talking to you. You get his voice. You get all kinds of aspects. You can see him on stage. And now our next act is, um, and Harlan used to do the same sort of thing. It was it was a little bit like uh, a magic show. Um, where you have the big reveals, you have the big acts, you have the big, I'm going to make an elephant disappear on stage, and then you have the coin tricks and card tricks in between that are uh, minor but charming. Uh, so, so, so the ingratiating personality of the writer is what sells those anthologies. Um, but, but you're saying that didn't happen, you know, sort of back in the day when Mark Twain was assembling a short story collection, or when Conan Doyle collected home stories or anything else like that? Well, Conan Doyle didn't, uh, did, as far as I know, didn't write interstitial patter between stories saying, and, you know, I really had a hard time selling this well, one. Well, that's true. But, <laughs> but would there have been introductions? I mean, not, not so much with the home stories, which were really presented, I think, my feelings more like novels than anything else. In other words, mm -hmm. they were just, just adventures. But uh, are you saying that none of the the Twain, none of the early Burroughs, none of the whatever else ever featured introductions or whatever else? They may have had brief introductions, but I don't think uh, I don't think the author was stepping out from behind the curtain. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll get Baker Street Irregulars correcting us on this. But you know, my my, my sense of the home stories is when they were published is that the the sense you were supposed to have is Dr. Watson has assembled these for your benefit. Uh, in other words, I think Doyle pretty much remained off stage in those. Yeah. Okay. It would be interesting to know. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting because, uh, to to some extent, uh, the cult of personality, which has been, you're right, it's been there in mainstream literature forever. I mean, certainly there have been famous writers who were performers. There was Oscar yeah. Wilde, Mark Twain, um, and. Uh, Right down to the present, there was Norman Mailer and, and, and Truman Capote, um, and Mailer. Okay, Mailer did this. Mailer is the one mainstream writer who did this all the time, and to some extent, the title of one of his collection of mostly nonfiction pieces may be 
what we're really talking about here. You wrote a collection called Advertisements for Myself. Yeah. And that's essentially what these things are. These are essentially, they, they may contain good stories, they may contain great stories, they may contain um, a, a, a variety of trivial and masterpiece level literature, but what they really are is presenting the author as a personality, or maybe more accurately, confirming the author's personality in the way that reassures the readers. You can't help but read any Neil Gaiman collection, Trigger Warning or Fragile Things or, or, or the one before that, uh, without being charmed by the voice of Neil Gaiman. I think that's true. And I think you can't read a Harlan Ellison collection without being, maybe charmed is not the word, but certainly <laughs> struck, struck by the voice of Harlan Ellison. <laughs> I will say this, though. There are risks to it, too. I mean, I was thinking about this. You know what the downside of having put forward the strong, clear personality of Harlan Ellison is? What? To my mind, and it's not 2006, to my mind is, Harlan in my mind is frozen in 1970. Is that bad? No, but, I, but nonetheless, it's a thing, right? To me, you know, it's those photos that you see on the, on, the, on the back of the early paperbacks where he's got, you know, some weird swirly shirt on, some, he's got sideburns, he may be, you know, carrying a pipe or, or not, as, well, yeah. as is his want. But nonetheless, Harlan, and to some degree his entire oeuvre, is of about 1972. Um, Which is unfair, grossly unfair, but that's the image. It's very, it, it, it's unfair and it is an image, but it, it's, it's, it's one of the downsides that comes from, as you say, the cult of personality. That's when Harlan became, quote, unquote, Harlan. Uh, he became the person who, uh, I, I'm, I'm well aware of that conventions would, um, would invite Harlan only because they expected something outrageous would occur. In other words, his personality... Uh, got to a point where it was overshadowing his actual fiction. And his fiction, after the 70s, became yeah. much more experimental, became, in some ways, a lot more interesting than it had been. And he, well, that's a bit... I think it's a bit of a big call. I mean, even through the 70s and stuff, Harlan stuff was very experimental as well. Well, that's true, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of stories like The Man Who Wrote Christopher Columbus Ashore, which may be a 70s story for all I know. I haven't uh, no, 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 that's much later. That's the, the, the okay. early 90s, I think. Okay, early 90s. My point is, these are stories where he would meld together various narrative forms and, and experiment with stories that had no resolution, stories that consisted of other stories, stories that had multiple unreliable points of view, uh, things that are, you know, in, in, in academic terms, postmodern. He did a lot, he did some of that experimentation early, you can see it in things like Deathbird. Uh, but by and large, uh, those are the kinds of stories that, to get back to our original point, mm -hmm. that are who doesn't know who Harlan Ellison is. This is going back to my defense of doing a book like Top of the Volcano, uh, or a book, for that matter, like The Best of Fritz Leiber, which you are partly responsible for and thank you for. Yeah, well, yes, I mean, I like those things. The, the, the thing is, we don't know Fritz Leiber anymore. Uh, very few people, I've met him twice, uh, and I can't say I knew him, uh, but by and large, as a personality, and he was apparently a very looming personality, a very intimidating figure in the field, Always, at a certain point, all we have left is the fiction. And sure. when you put out the best of Fritz Leiber, or when Bill Schaefer puts out the top of the volcano, what they're, what they're, what they're showing us is the fiction. The fiction is all we have left. The, yeah. the, the legend of Fritz Leiber has faded into the memories of aging fans at this yeah. point. And that's going to happen to every writer at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, there's a, there is a short story collection that we will maybe get to discuss soon. And? It's called Burning Chrome, Gary. 
Oh, really? I think there might be a reason to discuss that quite soon. It came with an introduction, by the way. And who did the introduction? Bruce Sterling. Of course. Well, what else? And this is because I'm going to be do something we don't normally do. Hopefully, if scheduling holds together, next week we will be talking to William Gibson. That's our plan. Absolutely. Where we can attempt to answer one of the great questions of the 21st century. Which is? Okay. It's a science fictional question. There's the sort of, uh, sort of, after cyberpunk, what have you done for me lately? You're not going to do that. I'm not going to ask You're, Bill that, no. Not, 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 I'm going to talk over you if you try to do that. No, no, that. I'm not going to ask Bill that, and it's not what has he done for me lately. It's more like 1985, this year, right, 1985, is the, uh -huh. this is the 40th anniversary, 30th anniversary, right, of the publication of, uh, of Neuromancer, which was the last great explosion of newness in the history of our field in some ways. Mm hmm what has, I mean, what has he been doing and how has he changed his approach to science fiction? He's, he came back to science fiction arguably with last year's novel, The Peripheral. Um, and what can, what can science fiction do to explain, embrace, be part of you know, the present and, and to portray the, you know, the future differently from here? Okay, I don't, I don't want to get into that discussion just yet. Because no, no, but that, I think that's part of the discussion we might have, do you think? I think it very well might be. I mean, I think that the sense that one of one of the things which uh, which Bill Gibson is famous for having said at some point, it's been quoted a lot, is that uh, he's a native of science fiction but no longer a resident there. Um, and that's interesting to the extent that he certainly uh, learned a lot of his craft from reading science fiction. Although having talked to him once or twice before about this, not reading not reading as much science fiction as you might have thought. Uh, sure, so see, yeah, sorry. One of the corollaries of your question is: Is science fiction still as relevant as it was in 1984? That's up to science fiction, isn't it? That's kind of where I want to go with that. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a valid point, and the other thing I'd say is, and it's also to me, of interest to me, is that whether or not he is still uh, a citizen of the city that is science fiction, or, or of the nation that is science fiction. Uh, what he did is part of science fiction's DNA now. It's true. Uh, so, so, so you're saying he can't escape paternity? I mean, it's a little. Are you still there? Hello. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes, I'm here. Uh, okay. The uh, yes, to some extent, that's what I'm saying. The next episode will be a paternity suit. Ah, excellent. Well, there we go. Okay, we've got something going there. Uh, but but the, but the other thing that I've um, the, the, to get back to our original topic tonight, I've been involved in at least a couple of uh, sort of best of anthologies. First of all, with with with, with Kit Reed a couple of years ago with Leslie University Press, and and this year with James Morrow, and both of whom, by the way, uh, to get back to your point, excluded an awful lot of stories. Yeah. And in both cases, they excluded stories that I would have included. Uh, so that raises one of the questions, specifically with best of collections, that who's best of? Uh, mm. Does the author is the author the best one to make those decisions? Um, when you and Charles put together the best of Fritz Library, you couldn't talk to Fritz about it. No, no, we couldn't. I wish we'd been able to actually. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, obviously, this is why the top of the volcano, which we've circled around and around through this conversation, uh -huh. is at least interesting in the sense that it, it's used a, a measure external to the editor and external to the author to select the exactly. stories. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't make it an objective benchmark, but it's but it's a set of benchmarks. Well, um, it's a bit 
mm-hmm. pick your field. I mean, one of the things we mentioned in the podcast, it's a benchmark for science fiction and fantasy stories, which have lots of awards. But his mainstream short stories, you know, outside of uh, maybe one or two were in the O. Henry, they're, they're, they're not going to be in that anthology simply by, by virtue of having been mainstream. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. But I also think, Gary, that it almost brings us to the end of our conversation on this happy topic of co- short story conversa- collections. Well, let's see what happens with the next few collections. I know that uh, a friend of this podcast, Peter Straub, is seriously thinking about putting together the best of Peter Straub, uh, which would be a short fiction collection, the first in many years. I really thought you were going to say short book, but... Um, <laughs> oh, no, it would be... No, I'm sorry, I just wanted to say what you were going to say. And would, it would not be that, but I just thought you were going to say that. Um, I would love to see that published. I'd love to see it. Um, and, and, and I think, again, it's, it's, it's something that would... Uh, involve, in, involve the principle of exclusion. And I think it, it gets to another issue which we'll have to come back to again, not only in terms of short story collections, but in terms of, of, of doing anthologies, which is that we always worry about the principle of inclusion, what makes a story good enough to include. I've always wondered about what, what makes you want to exclude a story. Uh, why do you leave a story out of your year's best? Why do you leave a story out? Now, you're right. Some stories should be left out simply because they're not very good. Um, but you must do this every year. There are good stories which I know you leave out of the year's best. And probably you know that they're as good as some of the stories that are in the year's best. But for some reason, they have to be well, I mean, look, just to touch on that quickly, because we've got a few minutes, but not many. There are factors. I mean, yes, there are 28 stories in this year's year's best, right? Uh-huh. Now, let's start with the fact that there probably were 50 or so stories that could have gone into the year's best. Okay, there you go. Uh, and you're going, well, okay, well, why this one? Why not that one? Why? Some of it is, I've already got it. I mean, like, it turned out that there were a whole bunch of good cyborg stories out this year. You know, uh-huh. uh, Neil Clark did his upgraded anthology, and some other stories happened to come along elsewhere on the same theme. There were a whole lot of stories about, well, not a whole lot. There was a number of stories about drones and quadricopters and such things. Oh, yeah, you expect that. And it was like, how many drones and quadricopter stories do you need? And, you know, there are two or three very good stories featuring zeppelins and dirigibles. You know, why? I don't know, but there were, right? Yeah. And so when you have that, you are sort of going, well, I mean, okay, how many dirigible stories do I want? So I've picked the best one of those, and this other story that might otherwise have got in, it's probably not going to make it. Uh, Sometimes you make little exceptions. You know, you'll go, okay, I've got a couple of quadricopter stories or or drone stories, but they do different things. You know, it's like this year I'm running The Vaporization Enthalpy of a Peculiar Pakistani Family by Usman T. Malik, which is uh, maybe his debut story, in fact, which is a spectacularly interesting, powerful story all about drones in, I think it's Afghanistan or Pakistan. But... I am also running um, a Greg Egan story called Sh- uh, Shadow Flock, Shadow Flock, which is about the use of drones and quadricopters in a, a Western society, and it's a different sort of set of subjects. So it's a little similar, but it's different. I was willing to go with that. So, and also, it's like I got two hundred two hundred thousand words of fiction to pick. So well, yeah. you, know, you have to just physically cut off at some point. Um, I mean. I would love to be able to think that there's some magic objective way of saying, here's 200,000 words of stories, clip there, and you're done, right? Because mm-hmm. then it's just be a matter of sequencing those. But you know, even within your, your own 
subjective assessments of stories, you know. It doesn't come that simply. There's a story here you like the stories. I mean, there's a couple of stories that I can think of off the top of my head that I'd love to have included that I chose not to. You know, I didn't include... Um, there was a... The Prelates commissioned by Jeffrey Ford's a story I'd love to have included. Uh-huh. But I already called, you know, sort of included a couple of stories from that source already. Um, I'd already taken a couple of stories from uh, Monstrous Affections, the Kelly Link's you know, Gavin Grant book. And I felt, well, I don't want to take four or five stories, you know. You can't just reprint a chunk of an earlier anthology. No, no. So there's the, even though I mean, it's doing that from an anthology, it's quite often they're quite unrelated, you know. And well, you, so, yeah, those sorts of things. Well, no, no, that's, I find this fascinating because, and I, I, I think everybody knows this who reads best of anthologies, because you have to shape an anthology. You have, to, you have to balance the sources. You have to balance the themes. You have to balance the authors. You try to balance, you try to get some kind of cultural and, 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 and artistic and, and, uh, and, and gender and ethnic balance. All that sort of thing is, is involved in forming a good anthology or, or, or a good collection, uh, yeah. which means that Let's, let's, let's take a really hypothetical thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Let's say in one given year, all 20 best stories, 20, uh, 20 of the absolute most brilliant stories of that year were all about quadrocopters. You couldn't do it. No, I don't think you could. So, you know. But that's what, so you make that's how it goes. You, you, so you make decisions. And, and you know, you're also you're trying to put forward a, a balance of things, a view of the field as well. I mean, you know, you know, sort of off, off, you know, off list that I have been working on the introduction to this book and trying mm-hmm. to come up with a, a sensible, thing to, sensible things to say and have been talking about the process of canon formation, taste formation, the the process, you know, the 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 role that discussion, the discussion of the you know around the field has in identifying excellence and how that changes and how the best of the year actually are part of that conversation, uh, you know, by bringing stories to people's attention, by yeah. offering a change of platform, all those kind of things. So yeah, there's that 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 sort of role too, and being aware of it. Um, certainly, it's daunting and strange to realize that when you do a book like the best of the year, you are firing a shot in in the um, process of canon formation. So, you know. Well, you're, you're doing that, and you're also, uh, although you'll disagree with this probably, and Gardner would dis- disagree with it violently, you're being an artist. You're making an artistic whole out of disparate parts. Yes. Yes. A collage artist or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, mine's a science fiction and fantasy-ish collage, and every now and again you get people shouting at you. I mean, I had my good friend Ellen Datlow disagreeing, well, not disagreeing, asking why the hell I was including two stories in the book, because she sees them as straight horror stories. And you're going, well, you know, I wanted to. It was part of the, it was right for the picture that was getting painted. Well, that's one of the things we could talk about at some point with Ellen, and she can be very articulate about this, uh, when you, when, you, when you get her to talk about discriminations, what's a horror story, what's a dark fantasy story, what's a fantasy story that's horrific, what's a horror science fiction story, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of possibilities. And my point is that all of you anthologists are artists, and you have a skill that I frankly admire. Oh, well, thank you. You're very kind. Um, it's something you do for fun in your spare time. <laughs> I know how much spare time you have, Jonathan. <laughs> well, with that in mind, I'm going to run off and actually publish this episode, Gary. And okay, we'll be back. In we'll in inches of snow we're supposed to be here. Maybe 12 or 15 inches of snow tonight. It'll be I, wonderful. 
I also am going to quietly mention this in the background of an episode or here at the tail end of an episode and say that we're, we are keeping up with my, my, my quiet, unofficial plan. And that is, I am eager to see if we can actually get 52 episodes out in 2014. 15. 52. We're going to do it. Absolutely. What a week. I mean, we, we kind of did it once or twice, I think. Last few years, we've been down around 40 or 42 episodes. So, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to see if we could actually do a weekly show every week. That may be more than people are willing to take. Well, they can always skip them, Gary. I'll skip this they, one. Yeah. Feel free to skip next week. No, don't skip next week. Skip this Feel one. Feel free to skip this one. No, don't skip this one because you've already listened to it. We're in trouble. Oh, look, we're, oh, try well. we're trying to help. I mean, it, okay. Well, it, if you skip this one, we understand why. Exactly. All right. <laughs> uh, well, on that cheery, slightly nonsensical note, on, until we uh, sort of journey out into the sprawl next week. We will be the Coon Street Podcast. Indeed. Till then. <laughs>